Hello, beautiful, loyal, delicious listeners to the Torpoise Shack. So-called comedian Tyke Hickey here, and I'm just letting you know that you have my undying admiration. I always find listening to Tony's voice, even in a short phone call, extraordinarily painful. How you can do it over the course of weeks, months, and dare I say it, years, is extraordinary to me. I would be delighted and indebted if you would support my Gaza fundraiser. The money goes directly to the Irish Red Cross, who are working with the Red Crescents on the ground in Gaza. Thank you for your time. Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope. And these are dark, dark days in the world today. And what is going on in Gaza right now? Our hearts are with the people of Gaza. Um, and I'm delighted to have on the podcast today Professor Balakrishnan Rajakopal, who is the special rapporteur on the right to adequate housing. He is a professor of law and development at the Department of Urban Studies and Planning in MIT, and he's a lawyer by training and an expert in many areas of human rights. Uh, Raj, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And um, our listeners will be familiar with, we had the previous rapporteur on before, Leilani Farah, um, who did a lot of work around financialization and housing and the right to housing. And we're going to go on to talk about that. But before we do, I did want to talk to you about your, I suppose, views and expertise analysis of what is going on in Gaza right now. Um, and I suppose first in terms of the the human rights atrocities that are going on, um, but then to talk a bit about home and the destruction of home and homelessness that is being um, taking place. And just before we start on that, I do want to highlight to our listeners, and I know many of you will be involved in different activities, um, that there are a number of events coming up this weekend. Um, the Ireland-Palestine Solidarity Campaign is organising a march and rally in Dublin um, at one o'clock, assembling at the Spire. And there is also a vigil in Shannon Airport, where US uh, military are travelling through um, at on the Sunday at 2 o'clock. Um, and also, there is an event coming up next um, Wednesday evening, which we've highlighted, which is on Generation Locked Out of a Home in Relation to the Housing Crisis. And that is a live event and podcast taking place next Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock, hosted by myself, Tony, and the podcast. And we'll have lots of activists and those involved in housing and the housing crisis coming together with artists and discussing what can be done at that um, and also, finally, Uplift are calling on people to contact the Irish ambassador to the UN to call for an immediate um, UN Emergency General Assembly uniting for peace resolution. And we'll come on to talk about that shortly and what you can do. Just maybe, Raj, give your reflections um, and thoughts on what is going on in Gaza um, right now. Well, uh, the situation in Gaza is grave and very grim. Um, uh, we, uh, in the UN system, the special rapporteurs, we uh, expressed our concern that this was almost uh, two weeks, more than two weeks ago, that um, crimes against humanity were already being committed and there was a risk of genocide. I'm afraid that uh, as we are speaking today, there is uh, quite a bit of substantial evidence that, in fact, we are witnessing genocide in Gaza. 
and um, there is massive and deliberate targeting of uh, Palestinians, of uh, civilians, and of the entire population. There is public and overt sentiments that have been expressed by so many leaders and others in power in Israel, expressing a desire to eradicate Palestinians as a people. Uh, in every way, every definition of the Genocide Convention of what genocide is, including the intent to commit genocide, which is usually the hard thing to prove, seems to be uh, overtly asserted uh, and present in the Gazan case. So, yeah, I'm very worried. I'm very, very worried. And, and that's, you know, something I've heard discussed in recent days that, you know, they are committing genocide and, and they are clearly committing war crimes as well. And it's very, very difficult for all of us to be watching what we are seeing in terms of particularly children being killed in in just numbers beyond what we can get our heads around. Um, and obviously as well for, you know, the Israeli hostages, um, you know, the families of those as well. But when we look at it, what Israel are doing right now is committing massacres that are really of of... of portions we haven't seen and it seems to me how can you know the likes of the US government and so many western governments you know stand over this i don't understand that it's very hard to understand how they can abandon their basic sense of decency and moral obligation let alone legal obligations i mean in terms of legal obligation let's be very clear they all signed the genocide convention and in article 1 of the convention it says clearly that states uh, have not only a duty to not to commit genocide and to prevent it, but they also have the duty to, quote, ensure respect. And this has been interpreted quite robustly over the years as imposing an obligation to act when genocide might be happening somewhere else. So it's not just that they shouldn't commit genocide, but they have to prevent genocide by others. You know, I, I just find it very hard to understand how such an utter moral and legal failure can be witnessed in this day and age. Especially, you know, the reason why Genocide Convention was signed was with the idea that that will, quote-unquote, be never again, right? Yeah. But never again should apply to all peoples in the world, right? I mean, the Jewish people were victims of some of the most horrendous crimes in the 20th century, and rightfully so, there was a sense of saying never again. But you know, it should apply to all people on, you know, in the world. It's not just a historical thing for us to be curious about. It's ongoing. And within that, the question of what the UN can do comes up. And it does seem very, very difficult and frustrating that, you know, the United Nations... General Assembly passes a motion to call for a ceasefire, but yet the Security Council can block that. That, um, and I don't know if you are aware of you, you, you are that motion the um for the peace resolution that could force essentially a ceasefire. And and as I said earlier, uplift in Ireland, an online campaign are calling on people to contact the Irish ambassador. And um, I've, you know, highlighted it as well and called on them in social media. Do you think that's a possibility if we could get more countries to call on that for that to actually have an impact? 
You're referring to the Uniting for Peace resolution. Yes, correct. Which was, yes. The precedent for that was set uh, in the Korean conflict. Yes, correct. And, yeah. And, and since then, it has been used a few times as well. And there is quite a bit of emerging consensus that when the Security Council finds itself unwilling or unable to act, then there is still the residual obligation of the General Assembly under the UN Charter to act on um, issues when there is a breakdown of peace and security, as in this case. Uh, so, it's, uh, yes, the short answer is yes, absolutely. But I also think that the General Assembly has other powers as well. In fact, you know, if you go back and look at what the General Assembly did with regard to apartheid South Africa, in the 1970s, in 1974 to be precise, the General Assembly unseated the apartheid government from the UN and did not seat it back after the end of apartheid. And the reason being that the General Assembly took the view that the racist apartheid government did not actually function in a manner that was consistent with the purposes and principles of the UN Charter, which includes protection of human rights. Um, I, I think that there is a good case to be made now that Israel is kind of in the same situation, uh, that states should look at all the powers that they have under the UN Charter and what they can you know, uh, cannot do as a General Assembly uh, in, the, in their capacity as members of the General Assembly. And do you think that would be a good move to make to to essentially what you're saying remove the remove Israel from the UN General Assembly? Uh, I just want to distinguish that I the the decision taken against South Africa in 1971 was not to remove South Africa from the UN. It was quote unquote to unseat South Africa. Mm. So removal, in fact, you know, raises the issue of whether a state is suspended or removed from the UN. And the General Assembly by itself, under the UN Charter, does not have that power. You need Security mm. Council to come on board. But so what does what unseating mean then? Unseating means there is something called the Credentials Committee of the UN, where they have to extend the official approval to a group of people showing up at the UN and saying that, hey, I want to represent the state. The General Assembly has to say that, yes, you are authorized to represent, that they're extending, quote-unquote, credentials when they do that. And they refused to do that with South Africa in 1974. So that doesn't mean that the state is suspended from the UN, but that the delegation representing the current government, which represents racist policies uh, in the case of South Africa, was prevented from taking a seat. So all I'm saying is that there are such options available. Can I ask a very quick question, Rory, on that? Because I think this yeah. is really important. When you, when you frame the, the, the actions the UN can take, it, it just shows that the levers that haven't been pulled, Raj, and, they, and when those levers are available, how do people put pressure on governments to do this? Because we've seen some other governments actually, you know, you mentioned South Africa really, because yesterday South Africa said, we're, we're cutting diplomatic ties and, and expelling the ambassador. And, you know, so, you know... Does, do, do we need to see more countries take those steps before we'll see the UN pull those levers? Um, that is up to each country to decide. Um, and they may or may not, you know, go all the way. Some have withdrawn their missions. Others have cut their relations. But a sense of isolation perhaps can be done in different ways, um, that they are basically on their own when they engage in acts that amount to international uh, individual states taking actions is one route, but institutionally, the UN still has options. And in terms of how the UN can be forced to do that, 
Well, obviously, speaking and acting loudly on these demands, including, I believe, uh, in the case of Ireland now, there's a push for, you know, getting the UN to approve the Uniting for Peace resolution again, right? So if something like that were to be done to push the UN to say, you've got some options before you. There is the Uniting for Peace resolution. There is the precedent of what you did with regard to South Africa. So do something. Don't say that all the all the action is in the hands of the security council and that gets blocked by a single member and then therefore nothing can be done by the un the un is bigger than one state yeah i think that's really really important to highlight that you know because these people might say oh well you know they're just symbolic acts but but actually they're very very important because what israel is doing right now is you know, it is doing it on the basis that it has this, you know, international legitimacy. It has the backing of the big powers. It's not being blocked um, by the UN. It is essentially, as it argues, is operating under, you know, and I listened to the Israeli ambassador being interviewed on, on Irish radio this morning, um, saying that we're operating under, you know, according to the principles of, of international law, when, you know, clearly they are breaching it. But they're able to say that because there's no one saying you know, at a UN level or, you know, passing motions saying that actually you're in breach of international law, you are committing war crimes. And it is, it seems to me, I think this is a really, really important point to make that there is more the UN could be doing, even though it might be a symbolic level, it's actually would be very significant in terms of putting pressure on Israel around what it thinks it can do. Yes, yes, of course, I fully agree with that. In fact, the idea that uh, we are acting in accordance with international law, if the, that is actually a way to confine the conversation only to events that have taken place since October 7th, that to me um, misses the forest for the trees. I mean, essentially, while it's tragic that what's happening in Gaza actually unfortunately shows evidence of so many international crimes and violations of international norms, the reality is that the history of violation of international law goes way back in the past, yeah. you know, for decades, uh, including the systematic and uh, structural system of apartheid that has been maintained, which, by the way, is also an international crime within the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. Pursued. Uh, we also know that multiple resolutions of the UN, uh, including that of the Security Council, including on settlements, have been ignored by Israel over the years. We know that there have been four commissions of inquiry looking at past wars on Gaza. I mean, this is not the first time Gaza has been attacked. Yeah. And all those commissions repeatedly pointed out multiple ways in which international law was violated during the conflict. And nothing has come off those those commissions either. So to, to say that, you know, we have to focus only on what's been happening since October 7th, and that we are somehow acting in accordance with international law, to me, is a very narrow perspective. And it seems to be as well, there's something I was listening to, a very, very interesting um, discussion. I watched it last night, which uh, it was a too long, a too, too long, two hour long interview with Gabor Mate. Um, and I would really encourage people to, to watch it. He talks about Israel and, and Palestine and he himself is a Jew, you know, he was, he said he, for a while he was, with, you know, organized within Zionism. Um, 
And but since he's you know spent a lot of time you know he's gone to Gaza he's worked with you know both Jewish Israeli and Palestinian people and, and, and around the the trauma issue but there was something that what he said you know I was really struck by you know and as those of us who believe in human rights that human rights are universal they don't belong to one group more than another and what is happening to the people of Gaza and you know all of us you know as parents you can't but be deeply deeply disturbed by what is happening to children and how children he said you know all children are equal and they are yes the children of Gaza aren't as equal and what is happening to them is really a human rights violation that is is utterly utterly um Horrific. And what I don't understand is that people who claim, like so many people across the world, countries, governments, to believe in the universality of human rights, we're not seeing universal human rights applied to the children of Gaza. Yes, it's the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. If we don't stand up for what that declaration means today, then, you know, it's be, it'll be like a catastrophic blow to all the ideals that have united the world and led us on a better path for the last several decades. I hope that doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah. Raj, the other area that I wanted to talk about was um, the whole issue, because you are the Raptor, the UN Raptor for housing, adequate housing. And, you know, one of the, the issues, as you've pointed out, has been within Gaza, you know, and, and the West Bank as well, this issue of, you know, Palestinians, and of course, from the foundation of of, uh, the Israeli state, the removal from their homes, from their land. And we are seeing, you know, figures um, come out last week. I haven't seen updated ones that, you know, half the buildings of Gaza homes have been destroyed. Um, That this, this loss of home alongside, obviously, the trauma of loss of life, but this loss of homes, you know, a million people plus losing their homes and possibly homes being destroyed, not possibly, being destroyed permanently by the Israeli bombing, that the loss of home is a huge trauma. And we we should also be talking about that, that issue of the loss of home and how important housing. As UN Raptor for housing, you know, what's your view on that? Um, I think it's actually a grave crime under international law. While uh, many provisions of international humanitarian law do treat dwellings, that is, civilian houses, as protected as protected uh, entities, uh, they have a protected status, just like you know, religious places of worship and hospitals and so on. They are also protected under international humanitarian law. Um, but unfortunately, the widespread or systematic attack on civilian housing and infrastructure has not been recognized separately as a standalone. And last year, in my report to the General Assembly, I actually explicitly called for recognition of such a crime, which I called domicide. Uh, And that was in the context of the systematic bombardment of Ukrainian cities, especially cities like Mariupol by Mm -hmm. Russia. Um, Massive, massive destruction and leveling of so many apartment blocks. And what we are witnessing today in Gaza is something as grave as what we witnessed before, and if not worse, because these people have already been under the subjugation uh, of uh, Israel as the occupying power. Uh, the latest data that I have shows that uh, attacks by 
Israel on Gaza have destroyed or damaged at least 45% of all housing units in the Gaza Strip, internally displaced about 1.5 million people, uh, killed over 9,000, 23,000 have been wounded. Of course, 67% of all the fatalities are women and children, and uh, 2,000 people are missing. Uh, and the astonishing thing, of course, more than 1,000 of them are children. Unfortunately, uh, many of them, uh, of these people who are missing, may be likely trapped under the rubble yeah. when these houses, houses were destroyed as well, which is really very heart-rending, really, to even imagine. Um, and as you rightly said, home means much more than simply a physical thing. It's where people have put their lifelong savings, and especially in Gaza, which is one of the poorest places on the planet in terms of per capita income and GDP. Uh, they have saved for years, if not decades, to finally be able to afford a an apartment, for example. Mm-hmm. And destruction of such homes essentially, uh, you know, in, imposes a cost which is not calculable only in terms of money. It's a psychological and uh, uh, and multi generational cost. Uh, people lose much more than simply a physical structure. Uh, the other thing I would say is that. The access to everything else that is important, for example, access to water or access to sanitation, so much is bound up with whether you have a home or not. Yeah. Um, and so the, a lot of what people need to survive as human beings ultimately depends on having a viable access to a functioning home. And it is just uh, astonishing to me to see uh, the, the devastation that has been wrought on Gaza in such large, uh, in such large measures. Uh, the other thing I would say is that even if under humanitarian law, um, there is an argument to be made that uh, some of the combatants have been taking refuge, for example, uh, under some of the civilian housing, for example, that was, I believe, alleged in the case of the attack on the Jabalia refugee camp. Yeah, um, and on the, on the hospital as well. Exactly. Um, but launching attacks on entire apartment blocks um, in order to get uh, one person, for example, or a small number of people, is prohibited if such attacks would lead to disproportionate damage, death, and displacement, as we saw in this case. Uh, I mean, no right under international law that I know of exists, either under humanitarian law, and no uh, right to use force in order to defend yourself, for example, a certain right of self-defense can be used to cover such uh, inhumane attacks. Um, so I just, I just think that these are sort of the examples of massive sort of crimes that the international community should actually prevent and uh, ensure remedies for. What do you think people, ordinary people can do in this? Because so many people feel powerless. And is, what, what do you think people should do? Well, th- there is a lot that people... Uh, can do simply to express their views by by mobilizing in large numbers, as we are seeing the thousands and thousands of people that have actually turned up on streets around the world, yeah. protesting the the violence and the damage that is being done in Gaza. Uh, that is how you bring about change. Of course, people should also officially mobilize with their own elected representatives and uh, political leaders to pressure them to take action. Uh, they should also specifically look at those who are complicit in the destruction of uh, of uh, Gaza, places like that. 
for example, the companies and the and the you know uh, others who are pro- profiting from the war, including arms manufacturers. Yeah. Um, uh, I think it's very important that the General Assembly, for example, earlier we were talking about General Assembly taking uh, steps. Now, one of the things the General Assembly can and should do is to really call for and impose an arms embargo, really, to prevent you know people from pouring more fuel into the fire by sending more and more weapons to either of the warring parties, either to Hamas yeah. or, to, or to Israel. And do you see that gathering much momentum, that, that arms embargo, the General Assembly passing a motion such as that? Well, it's being advocated for by some NGOs and by uh, other members of civil society. And in the public, there is, of course, a building sentiment but it has not entered official discourse of any state, as far as I know. Uh, but I hope that such measures, which seem to be common sense measures, to prevent more death and destruction, pick up momentum in the case of the UN. Particularly, as I said earlier, if there is evidence that genocide is being committed, as it is, I believe, as with many other UN experts, there is a very strong duty on states to take preventive measures to make sure that it doesn't get worse. And what's better when it comes to taking preventive action than to stop sending more weapons? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, again, it, you know, the, the call people who are listening to this can uh, take action with Uplift. Um, if you go on to uplift.ie, there's a number of ways to contact the Irish ambassador to you when to call for that Uniting for Peace resolution and other measures that we've talked about here. I think it's really, really important. And for those around the world who are listening, um, we can take action because, you know, as you've said, the, the, the protests that have taken place and um, the mobilizations that have taken place across the world, and I've been part of them here in Ireland, they are having an impact, I think, and and the social media that the, the people are sharing the revulsion at the the massacres um, and the 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 you know call for a ceasefire. I think there is a real sense amongst the global public that this has to stop. Yes, I fully agree. I mean, we have to remember that the word international community, which is often thrown around, doesn't simply mean a community of states. It yeah. means all of us humans around the planet. States are, of course, institutionally how we act sometimes as humans, but we should never reduce the idea of international community to that of states. And the, seeing the, the, the people who are mobilizing around the world gives me great hope that, in fact, there is still a sense of decency in the world. Absolutely. And I, I completely agree with that. And I think that's a really important point to make, that you're absolutely right. The international community is not just states. It is the people. And we are the international community and it is so important that we assert that the public, the people um, of the world, you know, want this ceasefire and want want this to, to end. Um, Raj, I, I just want to move on and to briefly talk about um, the broader issue of the housing, the housing crisis that is affecting globally. And I know you, you spoke to the UN General Assembly, I think, recently on this in terms of presenting a report um, that outlined the the global housing crisis that is ongoing, um, and we, you know, as listeners, are uh, many of them are living it, um, and unfortunately going through quite a deep housing crisis here in terms of record levels of homelessness. Um, you know, almost four thousand children and their families in homelessness in Ireland, the highest ever uh, recorded, um, and and an entire generation who are 
you know, stuck, can't get a home of their own, stuck in their, their parents' box rooms and we have rents that are completely unaffordable. People have been pushed um, into emigrating and a real failure um, to build public housing and, and the issue of the financialization of housing as well, the way in which global real estate funds have come into and been invited in by our own government uh, to provide housing that's completely unaffordable and turn it into a commodity. How much is Ireland an outlier or are we seeing this kind of a worsening housing crisis globally? Um, what's your kind of assessment and, and your uh, research and work as a rapporteur showing in terms of this global housing crisis? I think uh, I can say straight away that Ireland is not an outlier. Uh, we see it in many European countries, in Germany, for example, or in Spain and many other countries. And we see it, of course, in many industrialized countries around the world, from Canada to the United States uh, and Australia and others. Um, in the global south, uh, in large countries like Brazil or India, we see it take slightly different forms because of a very large number of people who live in informal settlements, yeah. uh, where there is a conversion of the land that they're living on for building either luxury housing or you know commercial property development. But that also leads to tremendous precarity in terms of housing security uh, for people who cannot afford to simply exist in the same city because everywhere, everything is more expensive. They just can't find a place to live. Um, and um, the short um, uh, sort of version of what uh, I said before the General Assembly is that there is a tremendous global affordable housing crisis. The financialization of housing, of course, is a very, very important factor that has led to this uh, global affordable housing crisis. The reason why people cannot afford homes is because homes are not treated as places to uh, live in because uh, they are needed to ensure dignified human survival, but as commodities. And this has been picking up momentum for, for years. And um, unfortunately, a few financial entities uh, and um, 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 have concentrated the market on housing and land and uh, have increasingly seen them as commodities to be uh, profiting from. And uh, states haven't done enough to actually discourage that or to bring about a balance in the market. But I just want to say that financialization is very important. But I, I, I mean, the changes that we have seen over the years that have led to affordable housing crisis are driven by many factors. I would actually trace it all the way back to simply a picking sense of belief in uh, neoliberalism, a misguided mm -hmm. belief in market self-sufficiency without responsible state I mean, the reality is that the role of the state in the housing sector has been declining since the 70s and 80s, uh, including, for example, in public housing provision and privatization of public housing, for example. Yeah. We know the, for, what, what happened, for example, in the United Kingdom after you know, Thatcher's rule. Uh, there is limited state capacity to address affordability concerns as states have shrunk in terms of their capacities. Uh, there is even a diminished public support for enabling low- and middle-income families to secure suitable housing. As the politics of you know, the different political parties that have been uh, on the rise in countries have unfortunately taken an anti-poor uh, message much more seriously. Uh, and then we have the other problem, which is that there have been inadequate legal safeguards 
that protect the rights of tenants and renters and mortgage holders who yeah. face excessive housing costs. Uh, on top of all of that, we have structural problems, right? There is rapid urbanization expedited by the climate crisis and also by the financialization uh, crisis that we talked about. So when more people end up in cities, there is simply tremendous pressure on access to housing. Um, so there are a lot of factors that have played a role in, um, uh, in creating what I call the perfect storm of affordable housing crisis. And we are unfortunately uh, witnessing the crisis in too many countries now. Can I ask one quick Tony, question? Yeah, no, no, me, no, no, I just think what I've like, I'm nodding my head, like eye in the sky here, nodding my head to what Raj is saying. I'm really agreeing with you on, on this, but it all has to be hit in the context of the idea of the concept of home. And I, it's, it's hit me really deeply over the last few weeks as I've seen people in Gaza who I know a number of years who have lost their homes. You know, 15% of homes are now gone. Um, I, you know, that sense of the neoliberal idea of, of, of home and the neoliberal idea of atomization of people as well, Raj, because that is where it's happened, where people are under productive economic units or productive economic units. How do we change that mindset in your role? That's the, that is the biggest challenge facing people understanding that the, 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 your, your predecessor gave us the statement, um, the, the, the pathway to human dignity le- leads through your own front door. And we need, we need to recapture that as, 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 a, as a planet, never mind just a, in Ireland, you know? Yes, yes, I fully agree. Um, the question is, how do we reverse the psychological impact that um, neoliberalism has had, which has led, unfortunately, to this idea of imagining individual, human beings as individuals, not connected to each other, imagining individuals as economic agents who are solely driven by their motive for profit-making, uh, quote-unquote, rational agents, for example. The idea that people act rationally. Don't just act rationally, they act empathetically. They care for each other. So there is much more to human motivation than simply rationality. But unfortunately, that has been driven out of public conversations. But the idea that human beings simply are maximizing, profit-maximizing little machines that just you know keep on doing what others are doing. Individuals are widely, widely different from each other. And we have to recognize individuals for their own sake. Uh, the other thing I would say is the is the uh, uh, lack of adequate sort of recognition of trauma that people go through when they, when they do lose their homes. Yeah. There is more than simply financial, as I said, with regard to Gaza. I, I quoted in one of my reports with you and the verbatim, what one, one of the reports to us when we were preparing the report uh, actually said, about the 68-year-old individual in Gaza who lost his home and he said that it, when he lost his home, when it was demolished, um, it was like his heart was being ripped out. Yeah. That's literally the kind of economic, almost you know, psychological damage that is long-lasting, not just on the individual, but on the family and on the extended networks who care about them. So it's, a, it's something that we really have to account for and prevent. Yeah, I completely agree with you on... Um, and Tony as well in terms of that that it goes deeper than financialization it goes deeper back to absolutely neoliberalism and that is the the view that housing 
was essentially and should be a market commodity and delivered via the market and that states' only roles in it should be facilitating the laws and legal system and planning system. And but of course, the irony of it is that um, states heavily subsidize the private developers and the private sector and actually transfer huge amounts of public money into private developers, into tax breaks that are, you know, subsidies to private housing investment um, and profiting from housing. But I do completely agree with you about trauma. And there is something, I think, in reframing our whole understanding of housing and housing's role in our mental health and in our sense of well-being. Because the trauma that I see, and and I write specifically about this in, in my latest book, in, for example, children who are living in households which are curious, chronically insecure in private rental accommodation, that, for example, children don't understand, you know, why are my parents so stressed? Why are they worried? They don't understand, why do we have to leave this house and go to somewhere else where I don't know the people in the school? I don't know why we left. I don't know why my parents were upset. And so that, they create all sorts of, you know, um, stories in their own heads. They, you know, it impacts on their development. And and you're right to say, you know, from that, you know, 68-year-old down to the child the, the purpose of home, it's like we made a fundamental mistake in thinking that you can just rely on the market for housing and that housing was different than health or education. Housing is even more fundamental than health or education in our lives. And therefore, the state and the non-profit sector has to be put central rather than the market in guaranteeing the delivery of home. And I think that's, for me, you know, something that we can really, I think, because people connect with the idea of trauma, the idea of mental health, and they start to see, oh, that's the role housing plays, rather than it just being, oh, it's your responsibility to, you know, get a mortgage, and if you can't, you failed, and and that. Um, but I do think that, you know, in Ireland, for example, there is a huge growing public awareness that public housing is needed, rather than the market. And I wonder, do you see that growing internationally, that this need for public housing, for the idea of a right to housing, is that growing or, you know, is that, is, we are, I suppose, in a way, in a battle for ideas around that and a battle for policies still? Yes. Uh, in some states and in some cities, you do see quite a bit of uh, attention to looking at uh, um, what um, has been called as a housing first approach. Yeah. Uh, driven driven by the idea that you know uh, people who are lacking in um, in access to housing or facing housing precarity need to be extended access to housing first as a way to help them with every other problem that they, that they, they including perhaps access to enough ambulance social services or help with other psychological other problems they may have but they need to have a house first in order to be able to deal with that. This totally flips the current approach in many countries, which is that if you have any quote-unquote behavioral problems, then you don't become entitled to a house, you know, even if there is a robust social housing program. Uh, to me, I think there is too much evidence that that approach has not worked. It has been tried for enough years, and we need to actually think of something else. And the other thing that I would say is that states do have a duty and ability to take the lead in ensuring access to housing 
uh, that goes beyond thinking about it as a commodity. For example, there are forms of housing like co-op that can be enabled by regulatory interventions. Land banks is another idea that I actually put forward in my report. That is a very critical issue. The yeah. reason why, the, why is that important? It's because if you look at housing costs in many of the highly urbanized places, almost 70% of housing costs comes from the cost of land. Only about 30% or so is from construction materials. So if you don't control the cost of land, then basically you're never going to be able to deal with the affordable housing crisis. So countries should take the question of land much more seriously, not simply keep on investing in, for example, expanding bureaucracies that say that they will ensure social housing if they lack the means to intervene in land markets. What's the point of creating such a bureaucracy? Yeah, yeah. And listen, Raj, last question is um, the whole area of constitutional rights and legal rights to housing. We're at... um, at the moment, having um, well, her government committed to having a referendum on housing. We're waiting to see a final report from the Housing Commission that we hope will advocate the holding of a referendum to insert the right to housing as a justiciable right, um, as a legal right within our constitution, and that is the right to adequate housing um, and the obligation on the state to fulfil that. Um, in line with the UN definition of, of adequate housing and progressive realisation. I think that's fundamental in terms of us reshaping our housing system um, in Ireland. Do you think, you know, from your work, putting a right to housing in the constitution, in the Irish constitution, that would be a positive step towards realising the right to housing? What do you think? Uh, absolutely. I think that it will be a very positive step. And uh, I extend already my best wishes to those who are actually mobilizing to have it done, and I hope to see it realized. Um, But having said that, I would also say that almost 40% of the countries around the world protect housing as a constitutional value or a constitutional right in one form or another, and many others have other legal forms of protection as well. Um, The record of whether such legal protection leads to actual transformation in access to housing is actually highly debatable. Um, Because I think it depends, number one, on other structural uh, elements uh, that also need to be in place. Legally, for example, it's not enough to sort of say that housing needs to be protected as a human right, but you need to enable, you know, the ability of governments to be able to act to ensure adequate housing. There are two critical elements that's important. One is local government capacity, and the second is taxation, uh, including over land. If local governments don't have the ability to regulate, for example, the value of the various things that feed into the cost of housing, then they will be unable to fulfill their constitutional obligation. Similarly, if local governments cannot take action to regulate the price of housing, as, for example, we saw in the case of Berlin recently when they had a referendum to impose rent control, But the Constitutional Court of Germany actually struck it down. Why? Not because they said rent control is unconstitutional or that it actually conflicts right to property, but because they said that local government within the German system don't have the constitutional authority to regulate it. So it became a federalism issue, the question of division of powers between different levels of government. So I strongly believe that when states or subnational units, for example, in California, there is an attempt now 
for in recent um, time to actually mobilize for inserting a legally enforceable right to housing in the California constitution. Yeah. I actually had a chance to address that and what I said there is what I would say to Ireland which is get your ducks in you know, lined up properly. I mean of course you know legal protection of housing including by constitution is important but make sure that you address the other structural issues including how your constitution already addresses intergovernmental relations including federalism and powers how your government addresses how your state addresses uh, the question of uh, revenue raising and taxation i think is very important to ensure that those things are in place otherwise you raise expectations when you constitutionalize a right to housing and then when it doesn't lead to better results people lose faith right that's actually a very unfortunate result yeah yeah and i suppose that is the important that you know i would see this as part of a movement of changing values and changing our understanding of and the role of housing and and that it is part of that wider systemic change and i think it's important listen raj thank you so much for taking your time today i know you're on um numerous uh media and, and you know events and i really do appreciate all the work you do um and will continue to do i know around housing and the right to housing um so listen thanks for taking the time thank you very much for having me and listen, just a reminder to our listeners, um, you, as I said earlier at the outset, there is an, a, a number of events happening this week um, and this weekend organised by the Ireland-Palestine Solidarity Campaign. There is in Dublin, there's a march and rally at one o'clock at the Spire. I know there's events in Limerick and other areas. And on Sunday, there's a vigil in Shannon um, at the Shannon Airport roundabout. And as I said earlier, Uplifter organising a campaign calling on people to contact the Irish ambassador to call for the Uniting for Peace resolution. If you can uh, contact them to do that. And next Wednesday, November 15th at seven o'clock, we're having a event online to highlight the housing crisis. We're bringing together activists like Spice Bag, um, artists, should I say, like Spice Bag, and activist Aoife Dunn, poet, um, and Ashing Hederman from Katu, Roshin McCashin from The Teachers, Frank and Jude from An Issue. Been on this before, and many others. If you want to register, go over and check us out um, online. You'll be able to register for that. I'll put the link Listen, at the bottom Ash, of this. And the link is at the bottom. Brilliant. Listen, thank you so much again for joining us today on Reboot Republic. Thank you to our listeners, um, and please continue to act wherever you can um, for a ceasefire now. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you all very soon. <laughs>